0: In this episode of Between the Lines, Ideas Research Fellow Lila Mater interviews Louisa Cortesi and KJ Joy, editors of the book Split Waters – The Idea of Water Conflicts. The book looks at the existence of the idea of water conflict and asks what it is and what it produces and how it is used to pursue particular interests and to legitimise specific historical, technological and environmental relations. Hello, everybody. We're focusing today on the book Split Waters The Idea of Water Conflicts. As we know, water is life, water is finite, water is key for human survival and well being. But water is also a source of exclusion, contamination, it's very expensive, and water co- brings people together, but water also divides people all over the globe. And as argued in this book, we all cannot do without water for long but we can for long enough to fight for it. So I guess that's the topic that we're going to focus on today, this idea of water conflicts. So to discuss these questions today, and indeed this is the topic of the book that we're looking at today, we have our two authors here, the two editors. Luisa Cortese is an environmental anthropologist who studies water disasters and climate change, environmental knowledge and technology, social justice and sustainable development. She has a dual PhD in anthropology and environmental studies from Yale University and is currently an assistant professor of water disasters and environmental justice at the International Institute of Social Sciences, Erasmus University. Her co-editor KJ Joy is a founding member of and senior fellow with the Society for Promoting Participative Ecosystem Management, SOPACOM, in Pune, India. He's an activist researcher, and he's been so for more than 30 years, working on people's rights to natural resources at grassroots and policy levels. And he's done a lot of very important work on drought, proofing, participatory irrigation, and river basin management and water conflicts. And he has published extensively on water environment development issues, including the co-edited book, Water Conflicts in Asia. So to kick off with our conversation, Joy and Louisa, uh, it would be just nice to hear what made you both come together and cooperate
1: to edit this book and put this volume together. Thanks, uh, Laila. Uh, before I get into that, I also like to just foreground uh, a bit of a background of, to this book. In fact, uh, this book has actually organically grown out uh, of the uh, substantive work uh, the Forum for water, uh, Policy Dialogue and Water Conflicts India, in short, the Water Conflicts Forum, which has been working or engaging with the different types of water conflicts uh, in the country for more than 15 years. It's a loose uh, network uh, of both academics and researchers uh, coming together uh, to engage with the water-related contestation conflicts, et cetera, in the country. Uh, and uh, you can find, I mean, as Laila herself said, there are different types of things which unfolding of different scales, different thematic focuses, and other thing. So uh, looking back on water conflicts forums work, um, you know, primarily we do a lot of documentation of uh, different type of water related conflicts in the country. And the first effort we did was that we brought more than hundred people together, activists and researchers, and also a few media persons to look at different types of water conflicts. And that book was published by Routledge. Uh, I think way back in 2008, 2009, if I'm not mistaken, called uh, Water Conflicts in India, A Million Rules in the Making. In fact, doing that book was an eye-opening to me, though I've been working in the water sector for many years. The type of conflicts and the type of context in which these conflicts uh, unfold and they've been narrated and things. But that book was a very similar exercise of trying to capture the different viewpoints of different conflicting parties in a particular uh, conflict and try to develop a of a typology, uh, keeping India uh, as the main focus and doing that with the understanding that uh, you, know, um, you know how do we contribute to public discourse around conflicts. And we thought that if we can change this public discourse around conflicts through our the type of knowledge we can generate, uh, then probably that may be the first step towards uh, conflict resolution or transformation et etc et etc. So we did that. I think we would have documented so far nearly 200 uh, cases of conflicts in different contexts and things. But what sets this book apart was that do, while doing that we all realized that we need to interrogate this whole idea of water conflicts much more rigorously uh, and try to say that there is no not a, I mean not uh, only a one narration or a one story which is unfolding. So how do you capture this in a much more academic fashion? The earlier works were much more I would say semi-popular, semi-academic type of a, uh, a work But here we wanted to make it a little more academically rigorous, but then how do you bring in this, uh, you know, how this whole idea of water conflict gets, you know, formed, how it travels, how it gets articulated, how it frames, and what are its political implications of doing this. So that is how uh, the Water Conflict Forum started thinking about this book. This was around 2013-14, I would say. And luckily, that's a time when Luisa Cortesi, the co-editor of this book, also happens to be uh, located in Pune, in the uh, town or city which I come from. And that's where we started talking about this whole idea about you know, how to engage with the whole framing of water conflicts and how this whole idea of water conflict is actually, you know, uh, produce, produce, travels, et cetera, et cetera. So that discussion actually uh, shaped uh, the, you know, this book uh, project to a great extent. In a way, I would say this was a coming together of two individuals who have got different strengths to some extent, but certain commonalities. Um, If I can describe, uh, you know, Louisa, for example, she comes more much more with the academic background. She's much more rooted uh, in that, but who also spent substantial amount of her time with the grassroots, especially, you know, engage with floods and things. So uh, I would say that though she's an academic, but she's also much more rooted in the grassroots. In my case, I started primarily as an activist, and, but then getting involved in some of the knowledge production or some research and writing and things. So we thought probably a topic of this type, especially politics, which has, um, uh, in fact, which we I also described in my last chapter, where knowledge and politics need to come together. So I thought, um, both of us thought that this would be an ideal combination to work on a topic like uh, water conflicts and how conflicts gets framed and things. So that's what I would say in short, how both of us came together uh, to do this book.
0: Yeah, great. Thank you so much, Joy. But for yeah. now, Louisa, maybe you want to provide um, a, a, a brief overview of the book for those who, uh, who are not familiar with it.
2: The book is is mostly on this idea of uh, of water conflict and the consequences of it, because we sort of realize that. Um, well, so so first of all. We we talk about the book um, about about the idea itself extensively, but then once we got the contribution in, once we decided who we really wanted to give uh, to to participate, we spend a considerable amount of time rethinking about it. We organized several workshop with um, all the contributors. We had uh, 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 them reviewing each other work, and then we had. Two specialized reviewer for each um, for each uh, contribution, for each chapter, uh, and, this, and another round of of worshiping the paper and editing them uh, together. So out of all this steering for for quite some 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 time about those contributions, then. Uh, sort of the, the, the book itself emerged out of that. The idea of it was to reflect on this single story of the social conflict, you know. I mean, in a way, the sentence that you were citing, Laila, before from the book about, you know, the water as a substance that one cannot do without for long, but can generally do without for long enough to fight for it, was something I wrote out of my own... You know my own sort of dissatisfaction with this with this with this um with this this idea itself i sort of realized that i was succumbing to this uh single this trope uh of water and working on water tropes has been something that um i continue to do and i've done for a while and so at some point i pause and 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 i sort of realized that my own understanding was limited instead of illuminating uh, the, the quest to understand water and, and its role in conflicts. And so then at that point, uh, realizing that I was buying into a story that positioned itself as the only one was, brought me to think, okay, so what, is, what, is it, what are the consequences of this idea? What does this, such a homogeneity implies? Um, can you tell us a little more about this
0: notion of the social idea of water conflicts, both theoretically as well as practically? Why does it matter?
2: Yeah, I mean the idea is um you I'm sure you're familiar with the work of uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is on the power of a single story and and that's where sort of we realize that the, the power of the single story is live, really to live its own life sort of um and as we as I said this this um The theoretical contribution of this book came from from really putting the the, the authors in conversation and um, reading and rereading their interdisciplinary engagement with water conflict. Uh, I, I realize that this idea of what a conflict as as a as an existence it lives uh, it lives a life which is both private and public and and it travels and and it it survives cultural incompatibilities because it's it is it is this this standardized uh, sort of almost. Uh, Eerie recurrent, recurrent uh, representation of water conflict amongst the, uh, across mo- the most diverse uh, group, groups of people. So recognizing that that uh, some form of, of uh, this standardized understanding is, is deployed by so many people, and and uh, focusing on the consequences of this this concept was. Uh, brought me to sort to, to, of to elaborate in, in the introduction about the the life of of the idea and so I I elaborate on how all these are each of these articles contributes to explain what is the life of an idea. Absolutely
0: so Joy maybe you can tell us why this really matters for the water sector because you've been working in water for a long time why is it that we really need to probe uh, the social life of water conflict? And what does it mean uh, for the water sector more generally?
1: Yeah, so uh, my starting point in engaging with this was that I know when we're actually engaged with some of the actual conflicts um, in the country, uh, we find that there is an overarching uh, framing of that conflict. Now, for example, very interesting movement Uh, in India around uh, water diversion from agriculture to industry, which is quite common nowadays. Uh, The first mass struggle or the movement against such a diversion was in Mahanadi Basin um, uh, on the Hirakud uh, large dam, where the farmers movement took on this issue saying that a dam which has been primarily uh, designed for agriculture, flood control, or flood cushioning, et et cetera, uh, you know, increasingly more and more water was getting diverted to um, uh, industries. Now, so the whole mobilisation around that was this single uh, idea, very powerful idea, uh, which could unite all the farmers, irrespective of the class, caste, and other type of you know, gender divisions within its things. They could mobilise farmers as one entity against another entity called the industries and things. Now, this is a very powerful idea uh, of uh, uh, you know uh, can go beyond the fault lines within the, in the farming community of because of various uh, reasons and things. In fact, that was the first movement which forced the government to even bring back some of the reallocated water to agriculture and things. And we are all supportive of that movement. But while doing this work with them, uh, we also realized that there are many other internal contradictions and narrations which are actually, uh, you know, uh, do not come out into the open. Now, for example, there is a whole question of internal equity in terms of distribution of water in the Hirakud service area. For example, uh, there's a huge uh, tail end deprivation, which even the activists or the leadership of the movement knows that's a, uh, People on the tail end are not getting access to water. Or the type of agriculture which is practiced these so very heavily, what you call in Indian uh, language, the green revolution agriculture, which is heavily, you know, pesticide and chemical fertilizer and uh, all type of uh, things. Uh, and there are other land alienation which was taking place uh, in that context. So we found that this internal contradic- contradictions actually or stories, ideas of conflicts don't come into the fore, because the entire overarching framing of the conflict is agriculture versus industry. I do grant that that has, is a powerful imagery. It's a powerful idea. But in the what happens in that type of a situation is that other contradictions which could have taken the movement to much more equitable and sustainable type of agenda probably got subsumed because of this overarching. So now we do discuss this thing and discussing with the leadership of not only about uh, this particular movement within any movement, uh, people uh, who are into research or knowledge production arena and type of a thing, uh, there is a some type of a, what I call an uneasy relationship between activists and academics to some extent. That is, and there are problems at both sides. Even if an activist, I know that the movement I've been part of, for example, you have a single uh, narration which is being turned around. And on the other hand, and anybody critical about or bringing new insights or the bringing out a type of thing, then that is not very positively looked at, very often. I'm sure there are exceptions. I'm just uh, making it with a broad brush. Similarly, the way the academics go around uh, in terms of. Uh, especially writing about social movements uh, and other things. We also find that um, very often the way the story is told and retold and travels around the globe, very often we forget what are those fundamental demands of the people or why people fought against a particular dam or a particular project or anything, because it gets into different uh, uh, things. So it becomes an overarching narration that, for example, if the Adivasis are fighting against a particular dam, then. people say, for example, the might have fought against because their livelihoods are being taken away. It's a cultural, uh, I mean, uh, uh, you know, um, the space of living life and livelihoods are taken away. There are destructive uh, type of a thing. So instead of uh, maybe starting from there, then the entire narration gets into a overarching critique of the cultural, uh, you know, about development and resource use and everything. And then we tend to, in a way, romanticize and things. So this type of positions very often. Um, I would say that from my experience that uh, does not give us space for any meaningful dialogue. So I think that we need to overcome both as activists as well as academics, some of these uh, areas and come with a much more openness to both critique as well as we produce knowledge and things. So in a way, it's a plea that this is a book which argues, especially saying that uh, knowledge is important. uh, it is a necessary condition for transformation, especially when you talk about conflicts as a, uh, you know, it's a transformative role in society and things. But unless it also uh, has politics or what you call social movements along with that, uh, I mean, uh, you don't have the sufficient condition to make this transformative change. So my basic plea is that, or you know, why we give this whole idea about conflicts is that it is a powerful uh, uh, idea and around which I think probably, we can have a much more meaningful which i call a we can broaden the conversation around conflicts in all its nuances between the academics and the uh, activists and i feel that these are the two constituencies who, who should come together around this so that they can make transformative change in the water sector and more specifically if you have to make conflicts a more of a transformative uh, transformative space so that's what i would say uh, why personally myself or even the water conference forum uh, got into this exercise, we so looking at more critically, uh, conflict as a, a metaphor, where we can uh, bring this conversation more meaningful, more inclusive, and more productive.
0: Louisa, do you want to add a little about um, what this means for the water sector more generally, and also um, what this means in terms of conversations between the activists and scholars? Um, in terms of working on water conflicts,
2: we, we weren't actually thinking about you know separating these audiences per se because we ourselves aren't aren't uh, you know we kind of represent the the diversity of of having multiple hats. Um, so we wrote it for for thinking people in general, people who are interested in ideas and and their effects on people's life and. We try to do two, two things: to engage with people who want to think conceptually, to invite them about to to, to think about the different, you know, social constructivism, realism, etc. The different uh, the the conceptual framework that inspire the converse most of many conversations today, and, and and also to for those who who's who are committed to think practically and are looking for how to bring. Uh, this form of engagement into the practice of development and because the point was that we we can do all the conceptual work we want but we have to make theory work for people Uh, and so in some way this this part of it was also written during the pandemic and it became almost a little more philosophical than that was intended uh, at least in 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 my introduction but um the the idea was to give value to the inclination to think and to say, um, how can theory be useful for both sides and how can activism be, be useful for people who are theoretically thinking. Um, and and it's what um, what Joy was saying about uh, the, this, our strive to reconcile activists and scholar is, is really important because um, it's something that I sort of, I felt strongly, like once I came back as a scholar to India, I felt uh, cut off from a lot of conversation that uh, saw scholars as only critically engaging um, with, with, um, with society and with activism. And um, I, you know, that, that, that's completely not, not my point. And I sort of acknowledge and learn from a tradition of critical thinking. But the point was how can we actually be uh, constructively useful uh, to each other and and so that's where that's where we thought that we could you know we that we could this um this common engagement that both joy and i uh have in common could could get into the for could become take the form of a book
0: no it's obviously succeeded because um you've really tried to break down that divide between um, academia and activism. And also you've uh, brought a lot of very, very interesting uh, cases here. So maybe we can talk a little about uh, some of the other chapters. You've brought, uh, there's, there's contributions from both the Global North and the South. Um, from England, Netherlands, Bolivia, Colombia, India, USA, many, many countries. So maybe you can talk a little about um, the different chapters and also some of the key stories and whether you see some commonality running across them, um, across the North
1: and the South. Yeah, that's true. In fact, um, if you find uh, uh, the, I mean, apart from the introductory chapter, which, uh, and the concluding chapter, we have about nine chapters, which talks about uh, different case studies uh, across the globe. Uh, I would say that they also bring in um, what I call different context uh, into the conflict uh, uh, narrative. Uh, for example, uh, we have uh, stories about floods. So we have one um, uh, chapter um, uh, from the Netherlands where this whole uh, idea of room for the river actually originated, and that is now getting exported in different places. So we have another case, I think, from Um, if I'm not mistaken, from Colombia, yeah, the whole, uh, the case study on taming the uh, Cauca River. Now, in fact, the idea wise, for example, nowadays, this particular idea saying that the rivers should get room or their space not be compromised in terms of lateral as well as horizontal flows, uh, all that or the flood plains and etc, etc. And structural measures are not the way to regulate floods or something, the room, the, 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 River should be given the room to you no know, flow uh, though now it is being internationally accepted by how each state manages this and in fact its a very interesting case study from uh, Netherlands saying that how uh, in fact the state apparatus actually manage uh, the conflicts and not allow the conflicts to you know you know really critically engage the conflicting parties and type of a thing and hence it is actually kept as a dominant. Uh, things. So not even explicitly accepting that there's a conflict which is taking place. So flood is one theme I think it talks about, and more or less the same type of a thing gets repeated in the, uh, the uh, Colombia case, uh, where uh, this, the, it is about the uh, uh, Coca River there. So you find flood as an arena of conflict and how state of Paris manages this without actually engaging with the conflicts or people's protests and things. Similarly, we have dams as another site of conflicts. In fact, I think we have two case studies, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, one is the famous uh, Cox Island case in the US, where this war conflict was against the, uh, the US Army of Cops, which uh, everybody had thought this as such a monolithic, hegemonic institution. And the people really took on that and this whole narrative around that conflict. And we see a different type of narrative around in India, around a, another controversial dam Polavaram, which is also an interstate river called uh, uh, Godavari, in which there's a huge uh, dam which has been built, which will impact the ethnic population, uh, much more in terms of their displacement, uh, loss of livelihoods, etc, etc. And that also, the authors bring in saying that there's an unchanging narrative which is taking place. The same type of thing though, uh, you know, they negate any type of changes which is taking place, whether it is agriculture, agricultural practices, people's livelihoods, uh, environmental concerns and everything, everything, and except and coming with certain, uh, you know, so called progressive measures saying that, oh, we are going to provide land for land as rehabilitation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But both the state, um, you know, doesn't change its narrative. The same type of narrative is uh, being used uh, or reproduced to justify a project like this. So you find dams as an important area. Uh, another uh, very controversial theme is this whole question of hydraulic fracturing it's again from uh, in the us the colorado uh, this whole water energy nexus uh, in fact when we were writing this uh, when we uh, invited uh, abstracts for the case studies and this when this came uh, we were little uh, in as authors uh, editors we were wondering whether we need to take it on because it's a very controversial thing Uh, But then this person actually did it much more sensitively saying that, what are we talking about? How, you know, try to, and even the energy uh, side of people, uh, using different type of units of water, which is, uh, this. you know, uh, every narration about this hydraulic factoring there, how much water is being actually being used, they use different units so people really don't understand uh, what's the type of they're talking about. So that way of uh, going about to justify uh, some of this. so that is another very, I would say, new theme for me because in India we don't have that type of thing. Similarly, even a very micro site like a well, but caught between two religious uh, type of things, how that has come out as a very ethnographic work uh, around uh, Varanasi, where uh, this whole highly polarized uh, discourse is taking place in the country, and I think because of that, this well. Uh, And this narrative, this case study, adds a new story or new dimension to entire uh, discussion. Um, And also how the rivers are, for example, conceived between two different countries. Now there's a case study about Nile. Nowadays we talk about rights of rivers and various other type of thing, rivers are always seen as a very beneficial and other type of narrative. So from whose eyes are we going to narrate this? Now the same river is perceived by people and including their own folklore and you know everything is this like in egypt which is the delta country or the most downstream where agriculture got developed much earlier than the upstream country like ethiopia where egyptians uh, conceive uh, and relate to river uh, nile as a very beneficial and friendly and other type of thing uh, whereas um, Ethiopians conceive that river in a very different manner because of the flood and the type of the so-called destruction it causes and things. Now, one of the biggest dams Ethiopians are going to construct on, or already there, the Grand Renaissance Dam, if I'm not mistaken, and, and that is creating its own thing. So, even how a same river or element element of nature is being used by two different parties to, uh, you know, make their points on that. Uh, similarly, um, one of the new things which I found, which I never seen, is this whole UK case study, uh, the life of the boaters and how they come in conflict with the authorities and type of thing. I thought, uh, and in fact, uh, that's a case study written by a PhD student who lived on the boat for about two three years while doing the fieldwork and going through that experience. And uh, how and for a person like me, who though I've been in the water sector, there's a completely new. Uh, theme for water conflicts and water-related conflicts. Uh, finally, I would say, and I would also hand it over to um, uh, Luisa to this. Uh, one of the uh, case studies is very relevant uh, to in the Indian context is this whole case study um, uh, uh, around Cochabamba. Uh, I think it's written by Patrick. Uh, we are all aware of the Cochabamba struggle that was the most renowned and talked about uh, resistance against water privatization which also led to a lot of political changes. The regime changed, there was a new constitution and the constitution guaranteed right to water and also said that there will never be a water privatization. Now for us, many of us in India, I think the story ended there. We repeat the same story all over as a successful agitation against water privatization. But this case study shows that the matter doesn't end there. After the new government comes, they also go for huge infrastructure centric uh, type of water provisioning to meet the right to water type of thing. all that, and there is a resistance by the local communities who have their own water systems, which is very decentralised. So I think that case study brings forth to me personally uh, uh, something like you know this whole statist versus you know more collective, more cooperative type of more much more locally suited type of alternatives and things. I think that's a case study uh, which brings a whole lot of new insights into issues of water privatisation, right to water. Uh, type of debate and things. So I think all these different case studies bring in a way different contexts and along with that uh, I think a richness uh, uh, to the book uh, as a whole. And I think each of these things have to be treated in you know, each case study itself is a uh, interesting, I would say, uh, uh, wealth of knowledge to students, activists, academics to engage with and further uh, go about it. Uh, uh, Louis, I would like to add something more. Please go ahead.
2: Yeah, I also wanted to go through the sort of the richness of, um, of all this contribution and pointing how uh, pointing at how they actually build the argument together um, in the sense that um, this, um, you know, this, this 10 chapters really highlight how the the consequences of, of the idea of water conflict. The first section works on how the, the idea of water conflict engender uh, as a power to to modify the course of events. And so you have the case of um, that Ben Bowles bring up with the boaters on London canals, where um, there's the ruling that imposed a definition on people identity, uh, which was perhaps a way to solve a conflict, but, but was actually uh, something that actually triggered a conflict. Um, and then you have the case of Mabon and Kawabe in Japan, where the official narrative of the, of the Fukushima disaster included the construction of the adversarial other. But then um, the people choose an alternative narrative that instead um, was most transparent uh, and it was focused on trust building. And they set up additional monitoring um, of the contamination by citizen groups. They focus on creating independent data, on making visible the process of data production, uh, basically, of showing that if the state, the idea of conflict is mobilized by the state in order to pursue specific interests, um, they the people weren't weren't comfortable with this noblest uh, set of opponents that was created, but instead they reinterpreted the the idea of of. Um, of contamination and they choose to avoid conflict instead of um, and and sort of the idea of conflict itself, itself engender the choice to avoid it um, and the, the third chapter which is uh focused on the netherlands is the the is centers on 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 these um on this case of of conflict avoidance and and argues that um, it's it's necessary instead to to recognize conflict and to deal with it and and of course it's center in a particular context so it doesn't it doesn't necessarily ring uh, a bell for for everyone in terms of how conflict is a- actually negated uh, but all those works are sort of contextual and yet they they inform each other. They 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 build parallelism and and uh, and talks about talk about the ways in which the story can go. Um, the chapters of um, in the second part of the second part of the book is built on this idea of how the idea of conflict is an interface that is used, uh, instrumentalized, and leveraged by people, by things, and by narratives. So how the the, the idea of what a conflict is mobilized to support or defy a certain certain set of of interest. Uh, The first chapter is a beautiful chapter uh, written by uh, Bloodward in the USA where and how um, the idea of conflict was mobilized to challenge the the naturalization of a technocratic understanding of social environmental relation on how the army corps of engineer was, was fostering this idea of a dam as unstoppable progress and um, and the, and instead, the, the the people resisted this this persuasive and glossy campaign, um, and were able to overturn um, the narrative uh, by 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 and you know and that sort of reveal how uh, this this uh, the idea of the conflict is could could um, could shade. Shade the light on the social narrative tension that otherwise would have would have gone unseen. The, in a way, if that chapter works on mediatic representation and and how it has and the potential of mediatic representation, the next chapter does exactly the opposite because it examines the pitfall of mediatic representation and shows how. Uh, in the case of fracking in Colorado in the USA discursive uh, analysis of water narrative shows that um, that the, the the idea of conflict is used as a matrix to shape accounts about water but it actually performs in a, a gate uh, keeping function at a narrative level by clouding the possibility of data production so she suggests that you know on one side um, the idea of water conflict is instrumentalized by media and by by decision makers for their own interests of representation. And at the same time, it impedes environmental learning because it's based on a volatility, on, on a very volatile debate. Uh, the case of the, um, of uh, from Benares by Vera Lazzaretti is shows that water may be not necessarily the reason for a particular conflict, but instead the weapon in uh, to be used by other set of interests in this case uh, historical the political clashes between hindus and muslim in india and she also reflect on how the idea of water is is often the water conflict is often naturalized but is is and it does naturalize water as a resource even when water isn't a solid there or when you know, it's, uh, it's what is actually forgotten, out of sight, um, uh, from in, in the story as well as in the site. So it talks about the symbolic power of water and of water conflicts. Um, and this, the, the, the case studies by Moreno Quintero and, and Teresa Selfa in Colombia um, talks about how the idea of conflict uh, naturalizes a set of relationships that are far from nat- natural. And this is in the third section of the book where we talk about how the idea of conflict as the peculiar ability to intersect with other ideologies. So in this case, is um, it, the idea of the conflict was able to mask subgroups of people as well as their relation with the environment. Therefore, it's radically different ways of seeing the word. Um, and in a way, the story that that uh, Renata Moreno-Quintero and, and Teresa Selfa present us could be read as, um, as a story of the inattentive import of, of, environmental mo- of an environmental mon- management model, that of the giving room for the river, which the Dutch engineers have successfully exported in, in many countries of the global south, but it's also a story of the epistemic consequences of, of uh, those models. Um, and similarly, this, the, the chapter by, um, by Mattia Grandi in Egypt and in Ethiopia is, is a wonderful and, and so differently written um, uh, interplay of, uh, of, of active fieldwork as well as textual analysis in, in different countries along the Nile and shows, it talks about a conflict that has long been predicted but hasn't as much materialized um, as a as a warning, you know, as 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 a, as a conflict is used um, against his own um, uh, realization. So it talks about these political priorities and how they are built by through the idea of the conflict and through the narrative. How the the narrative of the conflict is able to to justify the fact that water is essentially threatened and therefore needs to be needs uh, extraordinary measure needs securitization uh, so so it's um, and, and how this process of securitization leverages the idea of water conflict because it serves to dramatize it it serves to prioritize the issue on the in the public sphere uh, I agree with, with joy that the Patrick bresschennan in Bolivia's uh, work was was very interesting because the case of um, of Cochabamba is sort of the epitome of water conflict, right? It's known to be as it, it's often recalled when when people talk about the, the the what happens when water is privatized, and and what you show, what uh, Patrick shows us is, is a completely different side of the story, which is often out of sight, and on how people weren't necessarily just uh, fighting for water not to be privatized, but were were a, were also concerned about the pattern of exploitative relationship and and um and they were discussing about who instead is is responsible for water and who has the right to discuss and take decision of bad, that so sort of shifting this 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 narrative about water rights into a narrative of of water as a set of response relations of of responsibility. So challenging the categorization of water as a resource Mm -hmm. and how that that also means to question the, the, the standardized uh, idea of, of water conflict. Finally, the 10th chapter um, is, is instead sort of a, a standalone chapter in a way because it talks about uh, the negation of a conflict. It explains the narrative work that it takes to keep the idea of water conflict at bay out of, out of the discursive arena.
0: Yeah, no, you've really highlighted the richness of the book and the stories are, are really um, very compelling and from all over the world and also really interesting, rich lived experiences. So I guess for me, I've uh, I've had a career working on the politics of scarcity and how mm. um, scarcity is this compelling idea that is also considered to be the cause of conflicts. And this is a very uh, compelling Policy narrative: scarcity creates conflict, and this is used forever to justify certain interventions. So, if we kind of wrap up, um, what, how can these, how can your book push back uh, against some of these dominant policy narratives? What are the lessons uh, for policy, as well as for the development sector more generally?
1: Yeah, I would suggest a couple of things here. Uh, one is, I think, a book of this type. What it does and uh, which has a bit of a policy and uh, what we do later with it. as implication is that uh, very often conflict narrations are like you know icebergs. We see only the positions uh, 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 the different conflict parties take. Now this is true with any conflict. Now I mean, you take the interstate conflict in India, the whole Kaveri conflict, for example, in South India. It only talks about the type of different positions that the state of Karnataka, the state of Tamil Nadu take. But it always, uh, you know, the type of uh, what I would call the interests, the needs, the worldviews, the values, the ethics, all these are very often under the water. So what I think a book of this type is to bring forth all these things so that it becomes a uh, it opens up an arena for discussion dialogue in a much more informed manner. So I think more and more of this type of work needs to be done. Because at the level of positions, probably no dialogue and no, uh, you know, negotiated settlements can take place, unless we dig deeper and deeper and see what are the underpinning or, uh, you know, uh, needs or value systems, ethics, worldviews and interests which uh, different conflicting parties to come. And I think this is something which can contribute to different types of conflicts in terms of uh, negotiated settlements or, and unfortunately, in India, in the policy arena, uh, water-related are policies or the type of mechanisms are. In fact, there are no, you know, uh, dedicated mechanisms for conflict resolution or transformation, and therefore there is no democratic spaces which is available for people, different stakeholders or conflict parties to come together, share data, experience, needs, all type of things, and then come to something. So probably this type of studies or these type of books can contribute to uh, that. The second thing which I it's my pet topic which I need to come back is that um, uh, one of the uh, saying which has influenced my work is what Marx has said long back, saying that philosophers have interpreted the world, the issue is to change it, to transform it. So I feel would say that we may need to go beyond this polarization between philosophers, read academics and activists and ask the question as to whether what we do merely makes the world understand around us more understandable or whether we contribute towards changing it, and also vice versa. Whether trying to change the world wouldn't deserve the specialized understanding that academics pursue or they bring to the table. So to realize this transformative potential of the idea of water conflict, uh, we need to straddle both knowledge and politics, a goal this book actually pursues by deepening and broadening uh, the conversation among uh, these two important constituents, I would say academics and uh, activists. Uh, uh, in this, so I would say it is uh, two uh, two different types of contribution. One, it prepares a ground for this type of deeper conversation to engage with uh, in the conflict. Second, it has what is policy institutional implications in terms of conflict engagement and things, which is one of the critical issues or critical water governance issues uh, in many of the countries and especially India. So I am sure this type of work can contribute to uh, that level in terms of policy. Institutional restructuring, creating more space at different scales in the water hydrology or river basin, or right or from uh, micro watersheds to uh, transboundary uh, river basins and things. How do you create this type of institutions for such deeper engagement? Great, thank you,
2: Louisa. Yeah, I'll just be quick. I think in I think for for policymakers, this is a cautionary tale. It's it's you know it's about that the fact that their way, our way. Uh, of talking about something makes a difference. And not on, I mean, and that is a, as a sentence has been said several times in a way, right? But what we are pinpointing here and is how that happens. It's sort of the analytics of, of, um, of, of the idea. And so it's against essentialization, is against uh, the, this, this, uh, the, the, the use of categories as, as universal. Uh, so in a way, we know their processes, but on the other side, we also know that categories are, are sclerotic. They're rigid. They 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 don't want to change. There is there is an inertia related to that, and and um, and that's where the rubber hits the road, right? I mean, the the way in which uh, it becomes it becomes real and it involves people from from all corners. Um, so so what what we wanted to do was really show the ways in which, the, the way in which we think about stuff as um, influences what happens and, and, and how to be aware of that and how to rethink about, about that.
0: Thank you. Now this has been a really a very interesting discussion. Thank you, Louisa and Joy. I think you've really shown us that by looking at the social life of the idea of water conflicts, we really have to re-examine uh, some of these simplistic notions of conflict, of scarcity, uh, which can serve to legitimize certain interventions and interests, and also obscure a lot of other issues. And I think you've shown us, as Joy just said, these are these conflict narrations are like the iceberg. We usually see the tip, but we really need yeah. to dig deep to understand uh, different worldviews, ethics, different ideas of resources, maybe even cooperation rights. Um, And as you've also shown us, there's lots of lessons um, for wider water policy, for water governance. You've invited uh, academics and activists, and I hope also policymakers, to engage in these discussions and dialogues across different scales, um, really charting uh, the basis for uh, transformation. So it's not just about understanding the conflict, but actually to dig deep and go beyond and, and really um, you know go beyond the simplistic narrative. So thank you very much and uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and good luck with your future work Thanks for listening please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at between the lines at ids.ac.uk.